All right, so we are in uh, week three of our comeback series where we've been walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you've been following along with us, maybe you've uh, been able to kind of read ahead. Hopefully, you've been able to read ahead uh, through these two books and kind of see where we're going and kind of the story that's going to continue to unfold as we work through our summer series uh, this summer. So we've talked about the exile. We talked about how that's something that really uh, the Israelites brought about themselves, so the decisions that they made and the choices that they made uh, kind of pushed themselves into exile. And we saw how uh, God allowed and uh, allowed their comeback, allowed their return. Um, he he kind of gave them another chance at all of this. And so we kind of paralleled all that with our own lives and the own choices that we make, the own spiritual exiles that we experience and uh, kind of the things that kind of get us there. And last week we talked about how God works in the background to orchestrate uh, the events of our return, how he orchestrates things and how we just need to really listen whenever he begins to talk to us. And I know that even when we talk about a comeback, that each one of us in our own stories have experienced maybe that or maybe we're in the middle of it or maybe we're just at the very beginning of it or maybe hopefully maybe through this you're realizing I need a comeback. Uh, we all are sparked by different things. Uh, maybe it's a, it could be good things or it could be bad things, right? Uh, if we, when, when we talk about uh, the, the, the generation that kind of leaves church, uh, after they graduate and how they kind of do their thing, and we've all experienced that. Maybe some of us have even participated in that. Uh, something that happens in our life that kind of snaps us back is when we have kids, right? You kind of, you go, oh man, I need to have my kid in church, and so I need to get back into church. Sometimes that's a good thing, a good kind of a reality check for us. Uh, other things kind of spark that comeback could be uh, a, a, a medical diagnosis or a sickness or an illness. It could be a, a job promotion or a, a location change or a job change. It could be a number of different things that kind of happen through that. My, my hope from last week is that, that, that you would walk away going, I just need to listen whenever God speaks that into me. So whatever it is, whatever circumstances surround it, our responsibility through all of that really is just to listen. So this week, uh, we're going to kind of continue the story of the exiles come back. We're going to look at three things that I believe from the very beginning can derail our comeback. And, uh, and I believe God's going to work through those things. And so if you are a, if you're an old school note taker, uh, this week, you're going to love this week because I've got three points and they all start with the same letter and that never happens the way I preach. I just never do that. But uh, if you love alliteration, then today is your day. So uh, this should be real easy to kind of take notes through. But before we get to those, there's two major events that happen within the story of the exiles that we have to talk about or the rest of this is not going to make sense. So just hang tight on your three uh, points, but just know these three things. So let's set these things up. We finished last week. Um, Ezra chapter 1, uh, with the, the temple artifacts being returned. Remember, we talked about how Nebuchadnezzar took those away, and Cyrus said, no, give all that stuff back. Uh, give to the, re the returning people some treasure, some silver and some gold, and whatever you have to help fund them on their return. Uh, and that kind of set up the theme of restoration and how God restores us. And then in Ezra chapter 2, uh, it lists all the families that come back. It's a pretty incredible list. All the people in each family, they number those out. Uh, there's another list in Nehemiah chapter 7. We'll get to that in the coming month or so. Uh, and there's also, just for your information, there's an extra biblical, there's an outside Bible list that's an apocryphal book uh, that has this same list in it as well. There's three different genealogies here. And, and, and I say this because 
there's very few parts where they differ, okay? Two of them agree, at least two of them agree on almost every bit of these numbers. And, and we get to these, uh, these lists, especially like these family lists where we don't even know how to pronounce their name, uh, much less worry about how many people were in it, because most of the time we skim over that. And I don't want you to do that. Uh, when you come to genealogies or lists of individuals, read through those. Whether you can pronounce the names or not, you're never going to be quizzed on that. I'm never going to stand before you outside in the grocery store or whatever and go, can you tell me all the names listed in Ezra chapter 2? Because it, on, on one level to us, you know, it doesn't matter. But on the other level, it does because this is where the story of God connects to individuals. That It's incredible. Throughout Scripture, we see that God... He, he plays out the orchestration of his story through the lives of real people. It also reminds us that God knows us, like he knows us by name. And it's good for us to be reminded of that sometimes we feel like God is the furthest thing from our reality or maybe we are the furthest thing from God's reality. It's good to remember that God knows our name. And so when you read those, read through those and kind of struggle through the names and all that kind of stuff because those things are important. In all, about 42,000 people came back. 42,000 people made the trek. And if you, if you follow this by walking by the water, which is what they probably did, this is a 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. When we think about that, we think, well, it's not a big deal. It's no big deal. You just jump in the, uh, in the Bronco and you take off and you do your thing. That's, that's not what they were doing. They were jumping on a burrow and making this trip. It was not a fun experience, 900 miles by donkey and walking with kids. Uh, we can't even get out of the state of Arkansas and we're already white knuckling the steering wheel because the kids are fighting in the back seat. Can you imagine 900 miles? Are we there yet? I'm tired. Like my feet hurt. No kidding. Ours do too, right? And so this is not an easy, this is not an easy walk back. And here's the first thing I want you to notice out of this. In Ezra, especially in this book, there's no account of the actual journey. There's, there's nothing. It's simply they left Persia and then Ezra chapter 2 verse 30 or 68 when they arrived in Jerusalem. And we read that and we go, Where's the story? Where's the dramatics of, I mean, we got chapters in Exodus of the, of the Israelites wandering in the desert and all that they, you know, all that they experienced and all that they kind of struggled through there. Where's that story here? And my first kind of point through this without getting into our, our three points is it's not about the road that you have to walk back. It's about what you do once you get there. See, we've all experienced this exile. We've all experienced this distance from where we feel like we're supposed to be. And it's not about what all you have to do to get back. It's just about getting back. And I think that's incredible. When we read the story of Ezra, we go, well, there's something missing here. But really, there's not. Because Ezra's like, it doesn't matter. That 900 miles, that doesn't matter. It's we're back. And we're back in Jerusalem. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, Right? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and forgive us from all unrighteousness. Acts 17, 27, he is not far from each one of us. The road back is not a long road. It's about what you do when you get back. 
So the Israelites get back to Jerusalem at the end of chapter 2 of Ezra. It says they give an offering, which is incredible because that's the stuff the Persians gave them, right? These people didn't have a whole lot to begin with, but they were loaded down before they left. And the first thing they do is they take an offering and they're like, hey, yeah, this isn't even mine. I don't care. And they give it uh, to the temple, which is great. It's fantastic. Uh, Verse 70, it says everyone settled in their towns. And you should circle that word in Scripture. This is Ezra chapter 2, verse 70. They settled in their hometowns. This is Jerusalem. This is Bethlehem. This is Ai. This is Jericho. Wherever they were supposed to be is where they went home to. And what's so great is what happens next. Let's read. Uh, this is chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their town, there's that word again, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jozak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So at this moment, the altar is being rebuilt, meaning that for the first time, In 70 years, the people of Judah are able to worship, really, truly worship. Deuteronomy chapter 12 tells us the only place they were allowed to offer sacrifices was where God allowed his name to settle, and that was in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the only place they were supposed to offer sacrifices was at the temple. And when they were kicked out and the, the temple was destroyed, they could not offer sacrifices during their exile. And so for the first time in a very, very long time, they gathered together to worship. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the feeling of excitement and this connecting with God, this overwhelming feeling of, of relief and joy and, and like rightness, like this is finally, we're back, this is what we're supposed to be doing, everything is how it's supposed to be, like there's this movement within the people of God and they are so excited to finally be back in Jerusalem. So they've returned and the altar is rebuilt And now let's get to our three points for today. Here we go. Ezra chapter 3, verse 3. These are three ways that I believe you can be derailed from your comeback. Verse 3. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. So very easily, number one, my point is fear can derail your comeback. Fear. Listen, not everybody was excited about the Israelites' return. Right? The, especially the people who were kind of in that area. They weren't all that pumped up about, oh, there's 42,000 people coming back to this area that kind of has been ours for quite some time. Not everybody was okay with their worship. Not everybody was all right with them coming back and connecting with God, but that didn't matter to them. Some of us get so worried about what other people will think that we stop short of what God wants for our lives. And I know as soon as I say things like that, most of us pull back and go, no, I don't, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. Yes, you do. Right? Yes, you do. It's evidenced in every area of our life. We all care about what people think about us. 
It's, it's because we, we portray one thing in public and something else in private. It's, it's because on the way here, you were fighting with your spouse, but when you walked through the church door, everybody was smiles and happy to be here, right? We're the perfect little family. I didn't just pinch my kid when he walked through the door. I, I didn't just fight with my wife all weekend, and, and I'm going to show up because I'm, I'm a good husband and I'm a good dad, right? We come through because we care what other people think. We, we, we put our best days on social media, and we don't say about those days that we really mess it all up. We just kind of let those fly by. We care what other people think. And sometimes that fear, the fear of others' opinions, what others will say, how others would treat you, keeps us from coming back to what God has called us. Listen, I've talked to men and women in our community. I've been here for a long time. I've talked to, to people who've come back from a, uh, alcoholism. I've talked to people who've come back from adultery. I've talked to people who've come back from drug addiction and from a very public sin that everybody in this town knows about, right? And the ones who've made it, the ones who's done the hard work and who've reconciled relationships and who've sought out forgiveness and made things right and, at, and swallowed their pride, every single one of them admitted the fear of going back, the fear of what other people would say. They, they admitted the pressure that was there, but they worked through that fear, and they worked that fear into obedience. Hear me, the, the, the Israelites didn't ignore the people around them. like They knew that they were there. They didn't play games. They didn't pretend. They, they recognized them. They were aware of their presence. But just like this, us, I believe that they understood that they had to face their fear. And they needed to find some strength. And they found that strength at the altar by worshiping. Isn't that incredible? That besides the fear around them, they still came to the altar they offered their morning and their evening sacrifices. They were regularly at the altar of God and they fought back against fear there. I'm going to pause right here because the fear the Israelites were facing this from the people around them, right? That's what Scripture says. Because of the people around them, they were fearful. But I believe sometimes that fear kind of wells up inside of us, right? Right? We recognize our sin. We recognize our need for a comeback. We confess. We return. We get back to what we know is right and true and godly. And then fear settles in our hearts. And questions, all those what if questions start coming up. What if, what if I mess this up? What if, I, what if I can't do what God's calling me to do? What if, what if I can't go back? What if I go back to my old life again? What if, what if it's harder than I thought it was going to be? What if nobody believes me? Or worse, what if God doesn't even believe me? Look what God has them do next, verse 4. Then, in accordance to what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. On the surface, this seems like no big deal. Okay, whatever, Feast of Tabernacles, let them do. Unless you know what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. Outline Leviticus chapter 23, the Feast of Tabernacles, or they call it the Feast of Booths. 
If you're, uh, if you're a Hebrew scholar, it's Sukkot. It's the, it's the Old Testament word, Sukkot. Um, it's a seven-day feast. Jews would build these little tiny huts, these little like tents or booths, right? And they would live in them for seven days to remind them of the time when they were wandering in the desert and the little houses that they would put up and the little booths and tents that they would live in for those 40 years. They'd make daily sacrifices. They would sing songs. This was was basically kind of a, think of a a, a Woodstock-type party without all the drugs and bad stuff, okay? This was an exciting time. They would come. They would, they would celebrate together. Everybody would set up their little tent. They would, they would sing songs. They would offer sacrifices all the time. This was a, this was a big, joyful uh, expression of our history. As a matter of fact, if you know Scripture, um, this is, I think, in John, uh, where Jesus is, is celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, remember when they brought the woman out who had been caught in the act of adultery and they were ready to stone her and Jesus writes down in the sand and says anybody without sin cast the first stone. During this whole event, they were celebrating the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is, they found this woman celebrating a little bit too much with somebody else in another booth. Okay, This is where this all happens. Jesus celebrates this same event that we're reading about in Ezra. But the issue for us and the issue for the Israelites today is that this festival has to take place in Jerusalem. And for everybody else, remember we we said that word was that they settled in their homes. And now we have the Israelites just now getting back, just now kind of being back where they know they're supposed to be. And now they're being asked to leave home again and go to Jerusalem for seven-day festival. Why can't we just do this here? We just finally got back, right? Now we got to leave. What if, what if somebody comes and takes our stuff? There's a lot of them that didn't live in Jerusalem. A lot of them lived all over. And so what if somebody came and took our land back again? We just got here. Why do we have to go again? I think as praying through this, I, I began to ask myself some of these questions. Why what if we have these same fears? What if, what if this all messes up again? We don't know the unknown, right? What, what, if, what if the unknown really shows itself to be a bad situation for us? What if God's calling me to something I can't do? He knows our fears. He knew their fears. And I think it all hinges on that one word, it was used in chapter 2, I think, verse 70, and then again in chapter 3, verse 1, I had you circle it, settled, right? They were settled. Can I just say this? God never intends for our comeback to be a comeback and settle. He wants us to be active participants in his story. He wants to be active. We can't be active and settle at the same time. We can't do what he's calling us to do when we settle. There's fear involved in action, until you really realize who you're serving. And then that fear just kind of goes, well, that's not really fearful. The Israelites needed, they needed to get up and participate, right? They needed to get out. They needed to, to come back and say, okay, this, now we're back home. Now we need to go and we need to worship. They needed to do more than just come back. They needed to be reminded that their comeback wasn't about their homes and their fields and their lands. It was about coming back to what God had for them. This was the second chance at the promised land. 
And, and so I think a lot of us, some of us have this, this comeback, and it's exactly this. We just come back and we settle. We just kind of root into what we are comfortable with and what we know and what's safe instead of being actively participating in what God has for us. We just sit back and we're scared. And the fear of the what-ifs and the internal fear keeps us from doing anything. If all you're doing with your comeback story is just coming back and settling, then you're missing the bigger picture behind it all. You're missing out what God could do with your life and in the lives of others through your comeback story. You cannot come back and settle, no matter the fear that you feel from the inside. We've got we to move into what God has for us. So we've got these Israelites, they're worshiping, they're sacrificing, they're actively participating in what God has asked for them to do. And then finally, the Bible says that construction begins on the temple, right? This is Ezra chapter 10, uh, in verse 11, the first half of verse 11. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the Lord, uh, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with their symbols, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by King David of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. This is another incredible moment. Not only do we have the altar rebuilt, but now we've got the foundation of the temple being laid. Like this is a full circle moment for the exiles. We're back. We're back, we're actively worshiping, and now we're going to rebuild God's house. This is incredible. Should be incredible. See, where the foundation is laid, there's a plan. People sitting back, and, and, and you guys have experienced this here. I, I told you before, I came at the perfect time to this church because the, the, the Family Life Center had just finished, right? You guys had finished building it. Um, I don't even know uh, if, if the guy before me ever even moved into the office. I may have moved into a vacant office uh, from the moment that it had been built. Uh, the, the Family Life Center, I got to come in and pay it. I got to see the process of being paid off. God worked in incredible ways. I remember being in that deacon's meeting. Let's pay off the Family Life Center. We got money to do it. And so we paid it off. Great. I didn't have to, I didn't, I didn't get to be a part of the foundation part, but there's pictures, right? There's pictures of a lot of you guys when you had darker hair. There's pictures of a lot of you guys when you looked a little different. And you're out there with your shovels, and you know, you're breaking ground. And if I know anything, I remember people in this church. I remember guys like Kenneth Castleberry, and I can promise you, I've seen Kenneth pull up a chair and just watch people work and supervise the process of it, right? I can promise you, I wasn't even here, but I bet you Kenneth was out there watching them pour the foundations of the Family Life Center when that process came about. Some of y'all probably drove by and looked. And thought, oh, that looks good. That looks great. We're doing it right now to the gym in the new elementary. You guys drive by that every day going, oh, well, they're making progress, right? Because we see progress being made and we get a little bit excited about it. When the, when the foundations are, are poured, you can kind of see the outline of, the, of the, what the house is going to look like or what the building's going to look like. I, I can't do that. I'm not a builder. I, I can walk through a house that's framed up. I still don't know what room I'm in, right? Some of you have that ability to be able to figure that out. And this is what's going on right now. The Israelites should be excited because the foundation is being poured. They should be excited that, that the plan is moving forward. But let's read the second half of verse 11. 
All the peoples gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made such so much noise. The sound was heard from far away. This is a tough one. Fear can derail your comeback, but so can focus. Your focus can derail your comeback. We have this picture of immense joy and immense heartache coexisting at the same time. So many people are so excited because the temple work had begun, but they're, they're joyful, they're celebrating, they're shouting, they're so excited. But at the same time, the people who remembered the old temple, who remembered its opulence and its beauty, knew from the footprint of this foundation, this temple just wasn't going to compare. I told you last week I'd show you pictures of Solomon's temple the first temple, King David, remember he donated a lot of his personal wealth. He had a lot of this fundraising stuff going on. Solomon got to build the temple. 110 tons of gold, 260 tons of silver. Uh, on top of that, people, uh, the Israelites gave 5,000 talents, 10,000 denarius of gold. That's like 195 tons. Uh, 10,000 talents of silver, 675 tons of bronze, 3,750 tons of iron. Precious stones, the Bible says. All in all, I, I did the, the, the valuation on this about a year and a half ago. Without counting the precious stones, just on the gold, silver, bronze, iron, it was $14,386,779,000 worth of a building. $14 billion in today's money went into building Solomon's temple. That's incredible. That, that's, that's, it, was, it was regarded as one of the wonders of the world. Here's, here's what it looked like. This is one of the sketch pictures of it. You think, well, that's pretty unimpressive. It was, it was big. The altar is out there in front. You see the fire on it. The basin behind it is one of the basins. That they, this is a different artist rendering of it. Probably a little bit more in, in picture. Mark, if you hit that button, there's another picture there. That that's probably looks a little bit more like it. Things are covered in gold. All the, all the animals around the basins are all gold. I mean, it's just, it's just this beautiful structure. And when, when people would come and see the temple, they would say, man, there, there's got to be a really important God who dwells there. The fire in the altar never went out. They were consistently offering sacrifices on it. It was just this incredible structure. The, the people who were around long enough, because remember the exile was just 70 years. It says the older folks, the, the priests and the Levites and the older family heads, they remembered this. The temple that they're building now in Ezra looks like this. Hit that button, Mark. That's it. It's, it's unimpressive, to say the least. It was small. It wasn't, it wasn't ornate. It wasn't covered in gold. It wasn't, didn't have the big pomegranate uh, pillar tops and all the things that the Bible talks about the first one had. It was as basic as basic God. 
By the time Jesus comes along, it doesn't look like this anymore. Herod, uh, Herod the Great rebuilds the temple. That's why they called it Herod's Temple. Um, he, he adds on to it. He does a lot of stuff to it. It doesn't look like this anymore. But, but these returning exiles realize that the foundational footprint is going to be a small, unimpressive building. And for those who remembered the first one, it was pretty hard to celebrate. It's pretty hard to get excited about. The, 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 the younger ones, the, the new ones are, oh, this is great. We're finally back. The, the older, oh, I can't do this. This is not what it used to be. Because their focus was on the past and not on the present. It was about what God did, not what God was doing. See how your focus can derail your comeback? I believe in our own comeback, we can begin to lose focus on what really matters. And it can go a number of different directions. Listen, it can, we, can talk, we can focus on what we could have been, right? If I wouldn't have ever strayed off, man, I could have been this or I could have had that. If I wouldn't have wondered, if I wouldn't have been disobedient, if I hadn't lost all that I lost. And we weep over the what-ifs and the could-have-beens. Or maybe sometimes we... Weep over the life that we left when we came back. The relationships, the activities, the quote-unquote fun things, even though they were sinful things that we were doing. And it's a warped memory. It's just like the Egyptians when, or the Israelites when they left Egypt. Y'all remember that story in Exodus? When they were wandering the desert and they were frustrated with Moses and, and they said things like, we could have just stayed in Egypt. We had pots of meat to eat. We had all that we could have wanted, and they forgot that they were slaves in Egypt. It was a warped memory, and sometimes we do that to ourselves. Oh, I was living the life, and now I've, I've decided to come back, and our focus is on the wrong thing. The Bible says that you couldn't tell one sound from another, from the weeping and the celebration. And if we boil it all down, I think... That what they got in their comeback was not what they were expecting. And that hits us pretty hard. I told you last week that when you come back, God restores what was lost. But I qualified it with the statement that you may not get everything back, but you get everything that you need. And I wonder how many of us want to come back, not to get back what to God has for us, but just to get back some things that we feel like we've lost. Their focus was on the wrong thing. And listen, if your comeback is just to come back to get the things from God, the blessings from God, but not the obedience to God, then you're focused on the wrong things. Were they wrong for being upset? I don't know. They can be heartbroken. But if they wanted what they used to have, then they're holding God to a standard of restoration when they couldn't even hold to his standard of obedience. How dare we do the same thing, church? How dare we focus and say, well, I wanted this. Why didn't he give me this back? I've come back. And when all we have to do is look inwardly and go, yeah, but I'm the one who wondered. We can't hold him to a standard in our head when we can't hold to his standard of obedience. Fear will derail them your focus will derail your comeback. Last one, Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says this. 
When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build. Because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Arushadon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, let me give you some background here because it's important to know. Remember the, uh, the third word in verse 1 here, enemies. All right, these, are, these are not people here with good intentions. They were, in every sense of the word, enemies. These are primitive versions of what we now know as New Testament people, Samaritans, okay? Samaritans, let me give you a little history of why they were such a big deal. Remember uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel's capital city was Samaria. Okay, That's what they were known as. The people who lived there were known as Samaritans. When the Assyrians came in and kicked everybody out, remember I told you a couple of weeks ago, bears came in and ate some people, or lions came in and ate some people, and they sent one priest back. Remember that story? One priest comes back and says, listen, this is what, who God is. But he's got a whole country full of Assyrians that have never even heard of God of Israel. And so he's trying to teach them, but they do what every other people group would have done. They continue to worship their foreign gods, their pagan idols, and they just pepper in a little bit of God, Yahweh God, in with it. They're just kind of covering all their bases. So these people... This, this all happened when this, this instance happened with the, the priest coming back. It was 185 years before now Ezra says, you people have no part with us. You add on the next 400, 500 years, by the time Jesus gets on the scene, there's major divisions between Samaritans and Israelites. Okay, This is the reason why they didn't like each other. They weren't really seeking to help. They weren't really seeking to, to try to figure out, because what they said is, like you, we seek your God. Eh. Do you seek him? Yes. Like us? No. Because we are monotheistic. We are God-focused. We only serve the real God. You guys are peppering in everything else. You're just covering your basis. And thankfully, Zerubbabel is a smart guy, and he says, no. No, you have no part in this. This is for us and us alone to do. Keep reading verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is a long time. You can probably guess what our next word is. Fear, focus, and frustrate. Frustration will derail your comeback. Isn't it interesting that if the enemy couldn't physically stop them, then they tried to mentally frustrate them? It says that they hired counselors. This is, this is tactical. This is, we're going we're gonna to hire people to go in and try to, try to frustrate you even in the building process. We're going to try to get in your head. We're going to try to trip you up. And I feel like that's exactly what happens in our comeback story. 
How many of us have this overwhelming feeling of obedience, like if God's wanting to do something in my life and I want to obey him and there's this rush of what I call spiritual adrenaline in our life and we're, we're totally on board with what God has until somebody says something to us that totally derails us. It frustrates us. We feel very defeated by their comments. Somebody who's in the cheap seats of your life saying something to the effect of, oh, wow, (laughs) I can't believe you of all people are trying to do that. Maybe, Maybe they don't come directly to you, but they question you, right? Try to cut your legs out from underneath you. Are you sure? Are you sure that's something you should be doing? You know, I I know so-and-so, they tried to do that, and it didn't work out for them. Or my favorite, I don't think this is a good idea. I'm not saying don't listen to people. I'm saying listen to the right people. Why in the world would we try to listen to people who drug us into our sin struggle to begin with? Why in the world will we give them a foothold of influence in our life when we're trying to make changes in our life? We have to listen to people. We have to do life together with people. That's what the church is for. We should be here to bounce ideas off of and callings off of and what we feel like God's calling us to do off of. That's what the church is for, but we got to listen to the right people. We, like Zerubbabel, have to be selective to who we're listening to. Why in the world do we continue to give voice to people who should not have a voice in our life? Why are we going to be frustrated by that? We should expect it. We should come into it going, they're not going to get it. They're going to try to talk me out of this, but this is what God's doing in my life. We should be so confident and assured. But what we do is we listen and we hear that and it frustrates us. It's that's healthy about you have no part. And can I just say this, church, when you experience a comeback, there may be people in your life that have no part of it. Brene Brown is an author and kind of a speaker. She goes around. I've heard her speak a couple different times. She has a book, and in this book she talks about uh, listening to the opinions of others. And she basically says that she wants to be in the arena, right? She wants to be on the floor living a brave life. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of cheap seats filled with people who've never been on the floor. And those people give mean-spirited criticisms and put-downs from a safe distance. So we have to be careful to who we listen to. And she kind of summarizes it says, if you're not in the arena floor, then she's not interested in your feedback. And I love that. If you're not living a life fully devoted to God, then I'm not interested in your opinions about my life being lived fully devoted to God. We've got to learn to tune out people who don't have our best interest in mind and listen to the ones who do. John chapter 8, verse 47 says, Whoever is is of God hears the words of God. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's Jesus talking. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 27, Cease to hear instruction, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. When you begin to listen to things that you shouldn't be listening to, and to voices and giving them influence in your life, you're going to stray from what's right and what's true. There are going to be people in your path of your comeback that are just there just to frustrate you. 
Think about Isaiah in the Old Testament. You think, remember Abraham, uh, Isaac, not Isaiah, Isaac. Think about Isaac. Um, the Bible says when Isaac got a little older, he got wealthy, like his livestock began to multiply. He had some property, he had some land, he had some animals. And the Philistines, this goes all the way back to the Philistines, were jealous of him. And so what they did is that they would go around and they would fill up his wells that his father Abraham dug. So if you don't have a well, you can't water your livestock. And so the Philistines, instead of just attacking Isaac, they just would go around and fill up his wells. Just to frustrate him. And I, I, church, I wrote out beside my Bible years ago. This is a Bible I've had for a very long time. It's duct taped together. There are going to be people who want to fill up your wells. There are going to be people who just want to come around and frustrate what God's trying to do in your life. You cannot allow that to derail your comeback. We have to listen to the people who are on the arena floor with us. Fear, focus, and frustrate. Here's my last thought, and I'm going to wrap up because I know it's almost noon and you guys are ready to go. That word frustrate has kind of always stuck out in my head. That it, it's, it's always kind of just kind of come back and back. Matter of fact, that's the reason why I used derail uh, as, our, as our theme for today. How to derail your comeback because the definition of derail is frustrate. It's an emotion that we all experience. Some of us have been frustrated even uh, before we came into the sanctuary. Hopefully before you came into the sanctuary today, you've been frustrated. What happens when we get frustrated is that we normally we react, right? We don't respond. We react. It could be verbally with a, oh, right? It could be this, uh, I could, we could say words that we don't supposed to say in church, right? That's sometimes a reaction of frustration. We could yell at somebody, we, somebody who normally doesn't deserve to be treated that way. Sometimes it's a physical manifestation of frustration, right? We shake our fist, we get tensed up, we grit our teeth, we throw something, we kick the dog, we do whatever that we do. It could even be an emotional frustration. Sometimes when we get frustrated, sometimes there's people, myself, I, we just cry. I'm not mad, I'm frustrated. And, and the only way I can express this is an emotional reaction to that. The word used in Ezra chapter 4 is bala. It's, it means to trouble. Matter of fact, if you have the King James Version, I think I've got the verse on King James on the screen. The people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Troubled. This word is not used anywhere else in Scripture. Bala. It's the only instance of it throughout the entire Old Testament. It means to stop, to terrify, to trouble. But in Arabic, the, in, in its original language, it means to be weak in intellect. See, the biggest effect of frustration is not your verbal or physical or emotional reaction, but it's your mental state being weakened to allow something that should not have control over you to control you. You, it's, a, it's an intellectual dumbing down to a level that you don't belong to. And so let me just say this, and I'll say it like this. It's the easiest way for me to say it. You're too smart to be frustrated in your comeback. 
I've known you for a long time. You're too smart to be frustrated in your comeback. Don't allow the enemy to have this foothold of frustration just to pull you down to a level that you don't belong on. Some of us have felt that frustration. We've come back. We've, we've, we've maybe hit some kind of roadblock. Somebody said something to us. They're just trying to bring us down, and we just give in to it. And we've dumbed ourselves down to a level that we should have never been on. Well, that ends up pulling us back into our spiritual exile, and then we have to come back again. You're smarter than that. You know better than that. And you know that Scripture teaches us to do better than that. Recognize what God is doing. Recognize the tactics of the enemy and move forward. Not distracted, not deterred, and not derailed from your comeback. If you would stand with me as TJ comes and sings, we're going to have a moment of invitation. We'll do this uh, because it's probably the most important moment of our Sunday morning. Some of you say, you know what, I've been trying to have this comeback, but I've been derailed on some level or if not all three levels. I need to listen to what God's doing. I need to hear his voice in my life and I need to come back to what I know to be true. Fear, focus, or frustration. Don't allow these things to pull you back into what God is trying to bring you back out of. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. Thank you for all that we've been able to do. But God, in this moment, we want to be real honest with you. We want to be real transparent. And we just want to say, God, there's been things that have, that have pulled us away, that have derailed what we feel like you're trying to do in our life. And God, sometimes that's fear. Sometimes we've lost focus. And God, sometimes we've allowed other people or other situations to, to frustrate our comeback. God, we want to say we're sorry. Help us to work through those avenues. Help us to, to work through what you are doing in our life in full and complete obedience. God, I think it's incredible that the Israelites found strength at the altar. God, that's where we find strength. Help us to run to you, to recognize what's going on around us, but to keep focused on the things that matter most. God, we love you. And in these next few moments, Father, we just ask that you do whatever you need to do in our hearts. God, that we would be obedient. If there's somebody who needs to come and pray, God, that they'd come and pray. They need to come join the church or ask questions about salvation or just say, listen, I need to, I need to get back on track. I'd, I'd love to talk to them about that and pray with them and give them any kind of help and encouragement that I can. God, this is your time to work in our hearts. Help us to be obedient to what you're calling us to in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You